0: The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into John chapter 12. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your, first of all, your love for us. We know that we love because you first loved us. You are love, and you created us as beings to also love to love you and to love others. And so, God, we pray that as we see the story unfold today, we would see a beautiful picture of love, a beautiful picture of worship, a beautiful picture of complete, sold-out adoration and devotion to you. And I pray, God, that our hearts, as we see the story, would be transformed to be more like the people you love, Be with us now as we look into your word. In your name we pray, amen. We have been on this journey through the book of John since around Easter last year, and timing might line up so that we finish up at about Easter this year, so I know some of you were like, "Wow, we're doing six weeks on chapter one. We'll never get through this book." Uh, but some of these later chapters are more narrative in nature, and so they flow a little faster. Uh, but one of the most important things for us to see that I keep reminding us that the entire book of John, written by one of Jesus's closest friends, the last three years of his life, John, the beloved disciple, John wrote in John chapter twenty. He said, if I were to write every single thing that Jesus did, there's not enough volumes in the world that could contain uh, the awesomeness, the amazingness, the beautiful tales that he did. But everything that I have written, I've written for one purpose, that you will read it and that you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And from from chapter 1, Through chapter 11, we have covered the last three years of Jesus' life. From chapter 12 to 21, we're going to cover about a week. Uh, It's going to go quick. And um, uh, we're going to see the story pick up speed and unfold as we journey with Jesus this last week of his life on his journey to the cross. Jesus was born for one reason, to be our sacrificial lamb. Jesus was born to die in our place. And as we've gone from chapter 1 up to chapter 11, there has been a dividing line drawn in each chapter. This has been a book of belief and unbelief, of seeing the signs that Jesus did, of hearing the words that Jesus taught, and deciding whether or not to become a follower of his or to turn and walk away. Some have gone to the extreme of saying, we've got to shut this man up. We've got to find a way to arrest him. We've got to bring a charge against him. And it's building. And, and Jesus, each and every setting up till now, has somehow escaped. Not somehow, it's been purpose. Everything that happened in Jesus' life was for a purpose and by reason and by design. And each time he said, it's not yet my time. My time is coming, but it's not yet my time today. Jesus turns the page, and he turns his face to the cross, the purpose for which he came. And he says, I will not be with you much longer. My time has come. We're going to see that story unfold today. Throughout the pages of John we have seen lines be drawn. And Jesus, from the beginning of time, has been about division, dividing even our calendar. Before Jesus, we have B.C. After Jesus, we have A.D. He comes to divide humanity. Those are either for Him or against Him. He divides our destiny. He even divides families and marriages and friendships. There have been some who have turned to Christ, and, and, and instead of there being peace, There was a sword and people have drawn lines. I'm going to give my all for Jesus regardless of what my family thinks. I'm going to turn to Him. With Jesus, many times there's a love-hate relationship, a division of devotion or rejection, a division of worship or blasphemy, a division of faith and unbelief. Jesus will one day divide the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the children of God children of the devil. Jesus has come to call his sheep to himself, and the time has come for him to give up his life as the sheep, the lamb, to die for the sins of the world. And so we are going to journey with Jesus over this season. We're entering, and for some who know uh, the liturgical church calendar, we're about to enter the season of Lent. A season of preparing ourselves for the coming of the cross and what Jesus would do in the ultimate sacrifice. And this story that unfolds sets the tone. In many ways, what we're about to see, uh, which today's story is actually captured in all four Gospels, giving you a little different perspective of what unfolds in this dinner we're going to be invited into today. This dinner, in many ways, is very symbolic of a dinner that will happen called the Last Supper. A meal will be served. The important people of the day will be sitting at the table. A foot washing will take place. An example of Jesus being our servant and calling us to serve. All pointing to a greater purpose of Jesus coming to die for us. The backdrop of this setting is what, what one of our pastors, Pastor David, who was just up here, taught a couple weeks ago. I forgot completely about Super Bowl. And last week, I, yet, I mean, earlier I was saying, if you were here last week, you heard David teach on Lazarus. That was two weeks ago? Man, where's my head? Two weeks ago, if you were here, we went through John chapter 11. John chapter 11 uh, takes place just about a week or two before our events today. And what happened was Jesus was was with his his disciples and he got a message that a friend of his, Lazarus, was sick and close to death. They went and sent word to Jesus. Jesus got the word. Jesus waited a couple days and then went to see Lazarus. When Lazarus when when Jesus arrived on the scene, Lazarus had already died. And the sisters, one at a time, came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what happened? We thought if you, if you only would have been here, you could have done something. Our, our, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. And this has happened today so that my Father would be glorified. This was a a sign. Over and over again, throughout the journey in the book of John, we keep seeing billboards set up, signs erected, pointing the masses to see who Jesus really is. Jesus is about to die. He's about to battle sin and death. And we know the story, those of us who have read it, we know that Jesus is going to win that battle and in victory he is going to rise again. But the people there in this day, they don't know the story yet. Jesus has told them there have been prophecies about the Messiah coming and being the sacrificial lamb. By his stripes we would be healed. We have these, but but, but people are seeing a, a, a fuzzy picture of it all so Jesus is setting the scene. He wants them to see that he is the resurrection and the life and he can as he brought Lazarus back to life he even has the authority as we read a couple chapters ago I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to raise it up again. Any, Any good man or woman or any normal man or woman has the authority to give up their life. But nobody can Claim to bring their back life back again except for jesus jesus did not choose his words randomly he was meticulous he was careful he was detailed and jesus uh, was saying over and over again i am the one that was sent i and the father are one before abraham was not just a good teacher. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just a moral figure in history. Jesus is God in flesh. The dividing lines have been drawn. Some are choosing to follow after him and some want him dead. At the end of chapter 11 and verse 54, Jesus feels the growing tension. It's close to the time that he will give up his life, but it's not quite here yet. So verse 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. According to Luke 17, 18, and 19, he traveled also a little bit into Samaria and Galilee, and he did a last few couple visits, wrapping up his time here on earth, preparing his followers to be left behind to birth the church. He would birth the church in them and they would continue the work that he's begun. Now with the Passover coming, verse 55, the Passover, the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves yearly. They would make this trip and this would be the last one. Year after year, they would sacrifice a lamb, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, had finally come, and he was about to give up his life, no longer needing a Passover. From that point forward, this would be the final Passover. People from all around the nation were traveling in, many up the road where Bethany was, many onlookers, many people were hearing the stories of Jesus again. Many were wondering as they arrived in town, will Jesus show up? Look at the verse, verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Do you think he's going to show up? Is he going to come to the feast at all? While others were hoping he would because they were ready to end it all. Verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. Lines have been drawn. People are gathering, and Jesus knows His time has come. So He turns and heads back to Jerusalem, stopping in Bethany at the home at, at, at the town where the family was, where that He loved dearly, spent a lot of time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, what's interesting about this story from um, the other uh, Gospels that talk about it is they don't actually He doesn't actually go back to. Mary's home. Now, I don't know if, it, if there was a stakeout. You know, cops will post a stakeout. We want to wait and see if he comes back. So this dinner actually takes place at Simon's home. And if you read it in Mark and Luke, you'll see that. Now, Simon, was something interesting about him. He was a ex-leper. Uh, so this is an interesting dinner. You've got an ex-leper and an ex-dead man and Jesus. Can you imagine what the conversation at that table was like? And and, and, and and you know there weren't uh, medications back then to clear uh, cure leprosy, so Simon himself had been cured by the Savior, and he was throwing this dinner. They were throwing this party. Uh, this this occasion was special. Uh, they wanted to celebrate the new life of, in Lazarus, the healed life in Simon, and I'm I'm sure they were planning for it. They had the they had the stage set. Uh, I imagine this table back in that day. Um, You would have come in and reclined, so you would have been kind of like laying on your side while you're eating, close to one another, intimate, not just a quick meal, but a meal over, lengthy discussion. And this is the scene. You've got Lazarus, Mary and Martha's sisters, Jesus, Simon, and the disciples, including Judas, all there. A little good-sized crowd, kind of like our newcomer dinners at times. They were close. And I can imagine the stories were sweet. I can't wait to one day get to heaven and rewind the tapes and watch all of this played back. I'm sure there's a v- VCR somewhere up there, but let's take a look at what the scriptures say. Six days before the Passover, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover. Jesus turned. Jesus turned. And headed to the cross. Six days from the thorns. Six days from the nails. Six days from the spear. The sneers. The hatred. Six days from the sin bearing. Six days from the loneliness. Of being forsaken by the father. Six days from the reason he came. The Passover time that he would give up his life for ours. Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Bethany being the town on the way to Jerusalem where Lazarus was from, the man he rose from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. The other gospels tell us it was at Simon's house. Martha served. Martha sometimes can get a bad rap from scripture. You remember the counter earlier when Mary and Martha were hosting Jesus, and Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, uh, just worshiping him and hearing him teach. And Martha was serving, and Martha was like, what am I doing, the only one serving here? And Jesus was like, Martha, Martha. Anybody here named Martha? You've probably heard that before and kind of grimaced, but a term of endearment. Serving is important. And, and Jesus himself said, I have come to serve. So this is in no way uh, a saying that we should not serve. The words that we're going to see in a little bit also echo that. And here Martha is again serving. Some people just have the heart for serving. Do you know someone like that in your life? My brother Gary, all my life has been a servant. My dad, would come. we grew up in Colorado. And uh, one thing I love and miss about Colorado is all the snow. So much snow. And my dad would often come home on the weekends and say, all right, boys, who's ready to go shovel? And my brother would be like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, I don't feel good. I think I'm sick. My brother always, always ready to serve whatever, whatever the task was. Gary, I love him for that. Many of you do too. Martha served. The word there is where we get the word deacon from. I, I'm not going to pronounce it right, but it's uh, it's the word service there is uh, like diacone or something like that, and it means deacon. In, in a real way, she was like one of the first deacons. Serving the disciples, serving Jesus, serving the meal, serving is so important. I'm so grateful for the servants we have here at Hope Hill Church that show up each week to set up and tear down and, and those of you who fill in at times when people are away like our our students 80 or so students and leaders away on the winter retreat many of you stepping up to serve serving is so important martha was there serving martha served and lazarus was there reclining at the table and i can just imagine the discussion so what was it like to be dead lazarus <laughs> just can't imagine Mary therefore the other sister took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume to try and give some atmosphere i don't know if any of you notice any of you have sensitive enough noses to smell the smell in the room today anybody I smell a smell, I just don't know if it's good. Some of you are thinking. We, we put these uh, magic machines, what are they called? Essential oil diffusers or whatever around the room, but I can't smell them. But we wanted to fill the room with a fragrant smell. Because that's what happens here. You see, Mary went, and, and this, again, a special occasion. You've got an ex-leper, an ex-deadman, All these close people, they are in love with who Jesus is. Mary has seen this man come in and change her life, change the lives of countless others. She's heard the stories. She's in love with Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, and she wants to worship him. And she doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She goes and gets an alabaster jar we read from the book of Matthew, filled with about 12 ounces, about a can of soda you put it like that, it doesn't seem like it may be worth that much. A bottle of perfume, what's that, a couple dollars? This nard was something found from areas like Tibet. Hard to come by. Judas actually puts a value to it in a couple minutes. And he says, what are you doing? Actually, let me just read it for you. She poured out this alabaster jar. Uh, Matthew and Luke and Mark actually tell us that she breaks the bottle and, and she anoints him head to toe. She's, she's poured it all out. She is not caring of the setting, she's not caring who's watching, she lets down her hair. In Jewish culture, women just didn't do that. You did that around your husband and him alone. But here, she she just, in brokenness and humility, in, in, in an act of pouring out love, she breaks down giving up the thing that is most valuable probably to her entire family, in worship of the Savior. She begins to use her hair to wash his feet. Foot washing was very normal. Uh. For these dinners, but they typically happened at the front door of the house. There was a, a, a cleaning basin there. The lowest servant was assigned that job as guests came in. You dip your feet in, they'd have a cleaning towel, and, and you would be cleaned off so that while you're reclining with your head near someone else's feet, you're not having to deal with that stenched. You have fresh, clean feet. And we're going to see the same thing happen at the next meal a week from now. It wasn't normal for this to happen in this manner. It was normally water and a towel, and here it is, this expensive ointment, this perfume. What we know about this perfume is it was typically used in burials. In Jewish culture, they would they would prepare the body, and then they would cover it with oils and spices to try and do the best they could to keep smell of death away, so they could continue to mourn and revisit the grave and, and smell these good smells instead of the others. It's very symbolic what's happening here, and I don't believe Mary knew what exactly she was doing, but Jesus draws attention to it in a moment. What we do see from Mary is she doesn't care what's going on. She doesn't care what the culture says. She doesn't care what anybody in the room thinks. She is going to give her all for her Christ. Why is it in our culture that it can be so awkward at times to see people sharing expressions of love? Have you ever been in public and seen two people kissing? Now, uh, Yeah, it's cute to see... Somebody maybe give a little kiss and say goodbye and they're on their way, but really kissing? How many of you found it awkward to see two people in public kissing? Come on, I know I'm not alone here. That can be awkward. Like, get a room already. In some ways, what's really bizarre is our culture is more okay with outward displays of lust than love. Did not care. The only thing that she was focused on in this moment was the resurrection and the life. The one who changed everything and at the mention of a name brought life to a dead man. Her brother was now alive. Her life was changed. She had seen Jesus for who he really was she fell down to her knees and gave her all to him. When was the last time you allowed your love to lavishly pour out for your Savior? When was the last time that you did not care who was in the room, you were going to worship him with all you have and all you are? This is what we see in Mary. And I'm sure the room, in many ways, I know from the biblical accounts that some in the room were like, What in the world is going on? Some even made comment. Here, John points out it's Judas that says the leading statement What are you doing, woman? You could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. You're not thinking clearly. What's going on? He says in verse 5. Actually, I'm going to jump back to verse 4 real quick. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him. This is what we know Judas from the beginning. Judas was always the betrayer. Why did Jesus let him in? Because he served a purpose. We could have a whole another sermon, a whole another set of teachings on that. But Judas, uh, let me just read a couple passages for you real quick. Judas in John 17, 12 is going to be called the son of perdition in Jesus' high prayer. In Acts 1, 25, it's said of Judas that he would go to his own place. He is the son of perdition. Perdition means hell. John six seventy, when Jesus is seeing most of the crowds walk away, the disciples are then asked, are you two going to leave me? Peter says, where else will we go? There's nowhere, no one else better. There's nowhere else to go. But Jesus calls out in John 670 and says, I understand, but one of you is a devil. And this week after the dinner on Thursday night, Satan himself will actually enter the body of Judas, possessing it. Judas walked with Jesus for three years and missed it all. Judas is seeing this act of lavish worship and all he can think about is, oh my goodness, what could we have done with that money? Jesus actually calls him out. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why is this ointment not being sold for 300 denarii? A denarii was a full day's wage. 300 full day, almost a year's salary is what this ointment was worth. That's a pretty big deal. Why wasn't it sold? Imagine all the good we could have done if that oil was sold. Why are you wasting it on Jesus? could have given it to the poor. He said this, though, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. Too extreme. Nothing else matters, Jesus. You are worth more than my all. I give it all to you. Judas, what are you doing? You're foolish. That money could have been used for something else. Judas wanted to be in the position he was in for his own reasons. He was a man of greed, ambition, worldliness, and self-interest. Things were not going the way he hoped. He wished that Jesus would have been the true king who would have set the uh, uh, Jews free from the Roman Empire, and and he could have been there at the the staging to get a position of authority in Jesus' kingdom. And this is all falling apart. This is not going as it should have been going. And after this point, we're going to see from other accounts that he leaves this meeting, this dinner, and he goes to meet with the chief priests works up a deal to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. About four months worth of wages compared to the 300 we just saw spilled out as an act of worship. Worship, defiance. Many of us would never say, I'm definitely not a Judas, but when was the last time you gave everything? your Savior. I'm not a betrayer, but how many times do we betray Jesus with the choices we make? I would never sell out my Savior, but when was the last time that something else became number one in your life that Jesus fell a back seat to? We are called to love so lavishly Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. When was the last time we loved so lavishly? Judas Iscariot is on the scene. Jesus calls him out and says this, verse 7. so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. If you look at the different accounts, Matthew 26 records it this way. What she has done has prepared me for my burial. Mark 14 says what she has done has anointed my body for my burial. In Mark 14, 19, Jesus says of this act, Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's story will be remembered as a memorial for how we are to worship our Savior. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Keep what? The oil, many scholars and theologians believe the oil is gone. It's been poured out over Jesus' head and used to clean his feet. So what is Jesus referring to? Keep what? If Jesus if Judas were possibly able to keep going on and convincing all those in the room, and we've we're not here. This is foolish. Yes, sure we should love Jesus, but that's a little extreme. If the voices in your head or the voices of people around you tell you that your faith is too extreme, do not listen to them. her alone so that she may hold on to the spirit. She knows that I am the resurrection and the life. She knows that I am the first and the last. She knows that I am the light and the life of men. And in a week from now, I need her to have that same spirit still. When they see my broken body put in a tomb, I want her to be able to have that spirit and look at that tomb and say, That man is the resurrection and the life. I know he will come back again. Do not try to step on her faith, Judas. Leave her alone. There is a time and a place for most things. Even Jesus knows the taking care of the poor are important and of utmost priority. His brother James wrote, the kind of religion that Jesus desires is the taking care of orphans and widows. And so in verse 8, do not hear it wrong when Jesus says, for the poor you have always had with you, but you do not always have me. Yes, this oil could have helped The poor, but you didn't really want it used for that, Judas. What is happening here is what's of most importance. I am about to give up my life. The poor you will always have. And even after Jesus comes back, he's meeting with his disciples. Remember Peter, the conversation. What does he tell Peter to do? If you really love me, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Take care of the poor. Jesus came to take care of the poor, the broken. But right now, the focus is in the right place. Leave her alone. We know at this point, Judas breaks away. He goes and sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Word gets out that this is happening. This gathering is happening. Verse 9, the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Who wouldn't want to see a man raised from the dead? But the chief priests also heard about this. And you know what they did? They didn't just rally up forces to now go and get Jesus to kill him, but now they make plans to take Lazarus out as well. Can you believe that? We're going to kill this extreme, lunatic, crazy, insane man who is demon-possessed. There's nothing good about him, but we also can't have any evidence that somehow points people to him as a savior. We've got to take out the evidence as well. Lazarus has to go. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing. as the worship team comes up, I want to close with these couple points to us. The big picture of this story, our our perspective at sometimes can be flat out evil. We can look at this display of worship and question it. Was that really the right thing to do? Should she have wasted all that perfume on Jesus? We don't have the whole picture and we don't always see the things the way Jesus does. And let us not make the mistake of saying, well, I'm not like Judas, because sometimes we do things that put ourselves in the same place of being a traitor to our Savior. Number two, Brandy wanted me to use this phrase that love is gushy. True love is gushy. When was the last time you gushed? Seriously, when was the last time that your love and worship was gushing out of you to the Savior who deserves it all? Regardless of what the people around you think. Love looks like gifts. It looks like self-sacrifice. It looks like tears shed at a wedding. Looks like worship and postures that are not caring about what people think. Does your love for your Savior gush, pour out? Jesus said, this world will come to know you are my disciples and know me as their Father and Savior in heaven by how much you love one another. Love leaves an aroma in the air. It lingers. And it keeps giving. Without love, what is the point of any of this? Though you may have all the gifts and powers and talents in the world, without love, they are like a clanging cymbal. Like the fragrance in the air, our love for Jesus produces an aroma that is sweet and draws others to our Savior we are called to be that love in other people's lives. So if you hear a voice in your head tell you to moderate your love for Jesus, don't listen to them. Let your affections for Jesus be lavish. If, if, you, if the voices in your head or the voices of the crowd around you tell you to instead be rich in money, don't listen because Jesus has all the richness you need anything that money can buy cannot compare anything to him. If any voice tells you that his death is anything less than a triumph over death, do not listen. For he is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, though he died, yet shall he live. Father God, I pray that you would help us to learn to love lavishly. That we would learn to worship you in the fullness of who we are. You are worth it all. Father God, in the ways and areas in our life that we sometimes betray you. Break us. Make us new. Forgive us. Pick us back up so that we can continue to follow you. Thank you for being a God of second and third and 500th chances. A God who loves to no end and forgives always. So let us learn to live and to love with you. As our worship team closes us in a time of response and reflection, In the four corners of our room, we have tables set up, modeled after the last supper of Jesus when he was with his disciples. That last night before he was rested, he took bread and he said, this bread from now on is a symbol of my body broken for you. And this cup is a symbol of my blood that will be shed for you in the forgiveness of the sins of the world. As often as you eat and drink of this, remember me. On each table, we also have a basket where you can give back to God out of the blessings he's poured into your life as you feel led. If this morning you're at a place of realizing that you're not quite where you should be with the Lord, the great news about right now is that there's no time better than the present than to turn your life back to Jesus. To realize he's there waiting for you and he loves you. And he's ready to pour out his lavish love into you. So as our response happens, I'm going to go to the front. A couple of our leaders will be there as well. We'd love to pray with you. If you're ready to receive that love, maybe for the first time, you're ready to say, you know what? I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to accept him as my Savior and Lord. Today, I want to be made new in him. Come forward. We'd love to pray with you about that. If there's something else going on in your life, a burden, you're not meant to carry that alone. We'd love to hear about that and pray with you about whatever it is that we can pray with you for. So come on forward. And as the Spirit leads you, if you're ready to receive communion, remembering what Jesus did for us in our place, then we invite you to go into the four corners of the room and remember. So let's now stand and respond as the Lord leads us. Father God, move in our midst now, I pray.